worship. Uh, Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word that transforms our lives. I thank you for your resurrection that gives us hope. Uh, God, for those that are willing to go out on mission and share the good news of Jesus Christ with people who need it, both near and far. God, I pray that uh, in the moments ahead as we, as we look into your word, that once again you will speak to us, that your spirit would compel us and persuade us about the hope that we find in you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm so appreciative of uh, being able to, to worship with friends. I, I'm always appreciative of our, of our worship team, the, uh, Doug's discipleship of, uh, of these friends of ours. If, if in case you ever wonder what it, you know, uh, how you're supposed to worship, if, you, if you'll just watch Katrina, the girl that plays the flute, like, you, you, will, you will get a hold of, uh, I mean, if you can worship while playing a flute, I mean, come on, that was, that was, that's fun. You know, I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. Uh, specifically, we're going to look at chapter 7. Uh, we spent uh, a number of weeks, a lot of weeks in chapter 6. Uh, I had the opportunity to preach most of those messages. You heard one of the messages from uh, my son, Chris as we traverse through this long story about how Jesus fed the multitudes miraculously and then how He miraculously delivered the, the disciples that are in a boat and they were in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and a giant storm comes up and He delivers them miraculously to the, to the seashore and then he, he answers all of these questions in people's minds that are all driven by kind of their own personal cravings and by their own spiritual curiosities. And then we, we switch scenes, and we're going to get to John chapter 7, and I want to talk about this idea of learning to worship in verses 1 through 24 in just a second. Uh, as I was thinking about this particular passage, uh, one of the things that we're going to see in there is, is that the way that you set your mind early on in an experience is going to determine you know, so much uh, in your life. As a matter of fact, it, it determines a lot about your even an individual day. Uh, how many of you are uh, coffee drinkers right, right up in, at the beginning of the morning? Ah, oh, yes, bless all of your hearts. Uh, we have a tribe, that's right. Um, the, the folks in our church office know that, that I drink um, probably an unhealthy amount uh, of coffee, but I, d I don't do it for, for myself. I drink coffee for other people's protection. Um, uh, that's, that's why I drink coffee. And, uh, and, and, but in the morning, that's the first thing that I do. I, I, I get up and I, you know, kind of ramble out of the bedroom and I, I, I find the coffee pot. I, I, I get coffee going first thing in the morning. It's just, you know, it's just what I do. And, 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 and I'm so accustomed to that. I am so used to that being kind of the way I get my, my, my day going that if there's ever a day that I didn't go and, and get that warm, you know, hug in a cup, as it were, you know, I, I don't know that I would do, know what to do with the rest of my day because that's what I'm so accustomed to because that's kind of how, what gets all of the, everything going. That's how I kind of set the day. Now, it's kind of a silly illustration because there's so many other things that rummage through our minds and through our hearts when we get a day going or when we decide that, okay, today is Saturday, it's an off day, or today is Thursday, it's a day I got to be on, I got to go to work, I got chores that I've got to get done, and, and we try to get our minds set. 
Jesus comes to this place in John chapter 7 where the people that are the Israelites are about to go through an experience that they need to have their minds set in the right direction. But very unfortunately, he's going to find that they're not. They're not going to have their minds set in the right direction. As a matter of fact, they're going to be kind of diametrically in the wrong direction that he's trying to, to, to reorient them as to how they should be thinking about how they should be worshiping in this moment. So, so what I want to do this morning is I'm going to start here in just a second in verse 1, and I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to stop a lot along the way. It's going to take me a little while to get through the whole passage, making some commentary here, there, and wherever. And then I'm going to get down to the end, and I want to make one big idea that I want you to hang on to and then give a, a kind of a quick list of applications for it. So you know where we're going this morning. Uh, that as I'm reading through this passage, you're not thinking the whole time, oh my goodness, this sermon's going to last like three hours, which I can do that if anybody would like. I'm going to take your nervous laughter as a no. All right. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, I told you what the this is, this big event where Jesus fed the multitudes on one day. They all followed him across the sea on the next day. He had to explain to them that he is literally the bread of life, that they need him in order to have life. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. See, we... We romanticize the Gospels. At times, we even put it in kind of the primary colors of board books for uh, small elementary school kids where Jesus is like this uh, traveling vagabond troubadour dancing his way across the, you know, the, the Middle Eastern landscape. But this is a guy who is seen as a revolutionary. This is a guy that, that people don't trust. The Jews are literally trying to kill him. There's one particular event in the gospel story where uh, it's now called the Mount of Precipice. You can visit it still in, there in, in Israel where they get Jesus to a, a cliff and they want to push him off the cliff. They want to throw him to his death. And so the Jews are trying to kill him. And so it says he traveled in Galilee. Uh, but didn't travel to Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. Verse 2, the Jewish festival of shelters, or some of your translation may say the, the festival of, of booths or tabernacles or the feast of tabernacles or the feast of booths, the Jewish festival of shelters was near. Now, what is that all about? Uh, well, let me give a, a quick history lesson for that. Uh, so, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, it's called Exodus because the, the Hebrew people make an exodus out of Egypt where they are, they've been trapped as slaves for centuries, and God delivers them out of Egypt, and He is going to deliver them to the promised land. But before they can go into the promised land, they rebel and they say, we don't think that God is big enough uh, to conquer this land on our behalf. And so we're afraid and we're scared and we won't go in. And so God says, well, because you've rebelled, I'm going to punish you and you're going to have to wander through the wilderness for 40 years, for an entire generation. But even in the middle of your wandering, in the middle of my discipline on your life, I'm still going to provide for you. Isn't that like God? 
Even in the middle of while we're being punished, in the middle of while He is trying to redirect us toward repentance, He is still providing for us. And so, in the book of Leviticus, which that's a real book in the Bible, you can find it in the table of contents, um, in the book of Leviticus, God instructs the Hebrew people to begin celebrating this feast of booths or this festival of shelters, where every year for a week they would build tents and they would leave their houses and they would live in tents for a week in order to remember how it is that God provided for them while they were in the wilderness. And so all the way up until this time, they're still doing this. This is about, at the time uh, that Jesus teaches it, it's about 1,480 years later that every year for all of these centuries, one week out of the year, all the Hebrew people would build tents and they would live out in them for a week. And along the way, they added an eighth day after they went into what uh, historians call the diaspora, because there's a place in the Old Testament history line where the, where the Hebrew people didn't get to live in the promised land, where they were conquered and they were dispersed to other places. And so they live uh, for seven days in these booths, remembering that God had provided for them while they were in the wilderness, and an extra day while they're in the diaspora with the hope that God was going to send a Savior. And at this time that Jesus is walking on the earth, they're hoping that the Savior is going to show up in order to deliver them out from, the, from out from under the Roman occupiers, out from under the boot of the Roman Empire. And so it says that he doesn't go into Judea because the Jews are trying to kill him, but the Jewish festival of shelters was near. Now I'm going to speed up a little bit. So his brothers, his physical, literal brothers and his family, said to him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you are doing, for no one does anything in secret while he seeks public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. So at this point, he's in his hometown, he's in kind of his home region, and his own brothers uh, from Mary and Joseph's family, they even use the word if. If you can even do this stuff, you need to be showing off. You need to be showing everybody. Uh, if, if this really is who you are, then you should go to the festival of the shelters. We've all been waiting for the Messiah. And so if you really are that guy, you ought to go and show off all these miraculous deeds that we keep hearing that you're able to do. But it says, but not even his brothers believed in him. Verse 6, Jesus told them, My time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. And after he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. There is this nuance within the Gospel of John about timing. Uh, there, we find several places throughout the four Gospel stories where Jesus uses this phrase, my time has not yet come. Uh, there's this kind of part of his ministry early on where he is the hidden Christ, where he's not yet willing to reveal himself fully publicly because the time was not ripe. It, it wasn't ready yet. 
And he tells them, he says, the, the time has not come yet. You can go and come as you please. You can go to the festival. You can do and say whatever you want, essentially. But my time has not yet come. He said, because when I take the stage on the world, here's what's going to happen. It's going to hate me. And it hates me because I tell the truth about it. I tell the truth that the world, the people in the world, are evil. That we have sin in our hearts. That we are intrinsically, spiritually broken. It's not, a, it's not something that we like to be confronted by. It's not something that we like to have to deal with. And so we push against that idea. It's why so many other religions in the world sound so great and so wonderful because they tell you, you're intrinsically a pretty good person and we're just trying to sharpen your blade. We're just trying to help you be better. Be the best you that you can be. Well, I've met me, and the best me that I can be is still not really good. You know, I need somebody to transform me. And so Jesus comes speaking the truth that the world is evil, and so the world hates him. Verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly. The Jews were looking for him at the festival, saying, well, where is he? And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds, and some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. You see, still there's this fear mongering that's going on. Jesus is not this safe character that we try to make him out to be. He is not this soft-skinned, you know, long-flowing hair, kind of European Jesus that we've all got in our minds. I mean, this is the, the revolutionary rabbi who is rattling the cages of the world's system saying, no, you guys are evil, and you're enslaved to your sin, and you're imprisoned in your brokenness. They're all looking for him, and even to the point that the crowd won't talk about it publicly, but it's quiet whispers in the corners. Verse 14, when the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple, now he takes center stage, and began to teach. Can you imagine being in that moment where Jesus, the Messiah, this, this, this guy from supposedly the wrong city, the wrong side of the tracks, you know, married to a woman who wasn't married yet. I mean, there's controversy that sw swirls around him all the time, and all of a sudden he steps out onto the temple courts, and he begins to teach. In verse 15, it says, then the Jews were amazed. Now, here's the thing that, quite honestly, bugs me just a little bit. I don't know what he was teaching about. Like, John doesn't tell me. Like, I want to know. Like, did he, did he stand up and tell the date of the end of the world? Like, did he, did he explain exactly how it was that creation happened in that first day when, when God spoke it into existence? Did he describe, like, what is the real glitch in the human heart that causes us to be born with sin? I, like, I want to know what that was. But whatever it was, it says that all the people that are gathered, the most religious of religious, and all the pilgrims, Jews that have come from all over the Roman Empire uh, to this moment of this week-long festival, they are amazed at what he is teaching. And they said, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? 
Like, how did this guy, you ever felt like you were this guy? How does this guy know all this stuff? What does this guy think that he is? Who does this guy think that he is? And here's Jesus, and he has amazed everybody by his teaching. And they are absolutely astounded, and they want to know, how is it that he knows these things? He's got no training. Verse 16, Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but it's from the one who sent me. Now this almost feels like kind of an innocuous, sterile kind of statement to us. But in the setting, in the context, standing in the temple, having now unfurled some spiritual teaching, Jesus once again, this is, this is kind of code language for them, that he is asserting divine authority. My teaching comes from the place where I have come from. They all know that he has claimed to be the bread of life who has come down from heaven. They all know that he is asserting that he is the divine Son of God. They all know that he's used the title for himself, Son of Man. You'll see that throughout the gospel narratives. And that title is something that the Old Testament prophets used to refer to the the Messiah who was going to arrive. And he said, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Now they're ready to brand him a heretic. He says in verse 17, if anyone wants to do his, speaking of the Father, his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. This is uh, one of my favorite parts about Jesus. It is the bring it on, big boys, Jesus. It is the come, come at me, bro, Jesus. It is the, I don't know that you can actually challenge this teaching, Jesus, that we have. Because he says, if anybody wants to do his will, they will listen to my teaching and they'll know whether or not it has come from the Father. Verse 18, I think, is critical. It says, the one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Whose glory are we seeking? Jesus makes it really clear that he is not seeking his own glory. He's seeking the glory of the one who he was sent by. For us, if we have kind of a complaining, groaning, murmuring kind of life, it, it kind of belies that we are kind of caught up with self-gratification and selfishness. If we have more of a worshipful life, it it is that we want, like Jesus, for the reputation of God to be famous throughout all mankind. He goes on and he asks a couple of rhetorical questions there in verse 19. Didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? In verse 20, they respond. You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who's trying to kill you? Well, now they're just not being honest. Now, come on, who's trying to kill you, Jesus? Who's after you, Jesus? Well, throughout all the Gospels, people are constantly after him. The Pharisees are after him. The rabbis are after him. The crowds get after him. But they want to accuse him of having the demon. Well, who's after you? Now they're just being disingenuous. Verse 21. 
I performed one work, and you're all amazed, Jesus answered. Now, this question that they ask, you know, you've got a demon, who's after you? And Jesus responds, I performed one work, and everybody's amazed. Everybody's startled. Everybody's astounded. This is referring back to John chapter 5, this one work where Jesus heals a paralyzed man, a disabled man, who had been waiting for healing for such a long time, hoping that eventually some mysterious spiritual power would heal him. And Jesus comes along and, and does the work in, a, in seemingly a split second. And they question the man, and they want to know, how did this happen to you? And they are after him, and they're hunting him down, and they're looking for him. And now they've got him in their midst. And they say, well, you've got a, you got a demon. You know, years ago, there was a, an argument that was popularized. It has existed for a really long time, but it was popularized by the, the guy C.S. Lewis. I quote him pretty often. He's a brilliant philosopher, an excellent writer. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And he's the one who popularized this, uh, this question about who is Jesus. And, and Lewis said that Jesus is either Lord or liar or lunatic. Now, C.S. Lewis was not Southern Baptist, but he was almost Southern Baptist because he could alliterate really, really well. And he said he's either Lord or liar or lunatic. In fact, in one of his essays that Lewis wrote about what are we to make of Jesus, he said, Jesus produced mainly three effects in people, hatred, terror, or adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. You see, the one thing that Jesus cannot be is easily dismissed. I mean, you can think a lot of things about Jesus, but the one thing that you can't do with Jesus is just easily dismiss him as kind of a harmless character on the landscape of history. This guy is either who he claimed to be, that he really is the Lord of creation, or he is the greatest deceiver in all of history, he's the worst liar we've ever had, or he is absolutely a lunatic. C.S. Lewis said he is the man on the level who thinks that he is a poached egg. It's got to be one of these things. And so here the crowd is saying, well, we think that you've got a demon. Earlier his brother said, well, we don't really believe who he says that he is. And the thing that we can't do is just dismiss Jesus. He says there again in verse 21, he says, I perform one work and you're all amazed. You're, you're startled, you're astounded, you're slack-jawed. He says in verse 22, this is why Moses has given you circumcision, not that it comes from Moses but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Now, at this point, please don't get caught up with the surgical procedure of circumcision. Jesus is not doing a, a medical analysis here. Instead, Jesus is making a point to the Jewish leaders that are mad at him because when he healed the paralyzed man, he healed him on the Sabbath, and they said, yeah, that was a really good thing that you did, but you broke a commandment. 
You broke the commandment that says that you're not supposed to labor on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And even though it was a really good thing that you did, you worked on the Sabbath, so we can't trust you as the Messiah. And yet, he makes the point, he said, but don't you circumcise on the Sabbath? There's a, there's a regulation as to what day in the life of a little boy that you circumcise him, and even if it falls on the Sabbath, you still do it. And so he's pushing them back into their own corner to say, you know, you're, you're making a lot of hay where there is no hay. You're making a big point where there is no point. Uh, you're trying to trap me to say that I have broken the law when uh, I have not broken the law. And then he ends there in verse 24. Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. He, he is saying you've got to understand life and decisions and people and everything you encounter. You've got to understand me by the standard of God's character, not by the outward appearances of what it is that you want life to be. When we judge Christ by outward appearances, we show that we actually don't know who He is, and we don't actually know what truth is. The only path forward is to understand life through righteous judgment, which is through the lens of the character of God. So as I walk through this whole passage, and I think, you know, Jesus is here revealing Himself to the people, and he's at the, the festival of shelters, and, and, they, and they're halfway through it. They've spent several days now singing and hearing the Word preached and taught by rabbis, and, and they have recounted to their children and their grandchildren and to their extended families how it is that God provided for people while they were in the wilderness 15 centuries ago, and how the people of Israel had been practicing this all of this time, and how this festival had this eighth day that where they were going to look forward to the Messiah who was going to come. Essentially, what they're in is an eight-day worship service. I mean, this is what they're doing. They're camping out for eight days so that they can worship relatively nonstop for eight days in a row where they can sing and they can remember and they can recount and they can testify and they can glory in the fact that God is the one who provides both in history and in the present. And for them, they're thinking, and He's going to provide us a Savior. And here Jesus stands in the middle of them. And that's why I think that this passage is very much about how it is that we learn to worship. Here's the big point that I would make to you, and then I want to give you a few ideas about how to fulfill this maybe in your life. Complaining eliminates your ability to worship. Complaining eliminates your ability to worship. Here they were in an eight-day worship service. This is what they did historically, year after year after year. Every year, dad goes out of the house and builds a tent. He builds a shelter. And every year, dad and mom and all the kids and the extended family gather in this tent and sing, and they go to the temple, and they hear the teaching, and they listen to the Levites as they lead them in the Psalms to sing them and to chant them back and forth between congregation and leadership. And, and, and for eight days, they hear about how God provided manna in the wilderness, how the, the, the Hebrew, their clothes never wore out, their shoes never wore out, how water came out of a boulder so that they would have something to drink, how it is that there was no uh, encroaching 
losing army that ever overran them, and how eventually they go into the promised land unscathed, and and God gives them everything that He had promised to them, and that there was a Savior that was going to be arriving one day. This is what they did every year, every year. Dad from his childhood, his dad from his childhood, his dad from his childhood. Every year. And here they are in the middle of this worship service, and they are so blinded with rage and distrust. They are so blinded with their own personal complaints that they are not getting what they want because they want out from under Rome. They, they've got the, it in their mind what it is that they want, and they're complaining has completely eliminated their ability to actually worship because the Savior just walked into the middle of their worship service. But this is the answer, is that the work and the presence of Jesus destroys your reasons to complain. When Jesus shows up into the middle of your life, you don't have any more reasons to complain. Yes, your car's not working right. Sure, you don't feel really good today. I get it. Your stock portfolio has taken a little bit of a nosedive. I I understand you're not so sure if the company is going to make it and are they going to downsize or not. All of that stuff is real. Those are real circumstances that we are all having to traverse through. Family life is not great. Friends are betraying you. Uh, your, you. Your love life is not on par with where you thought it would be at this point in your life. You know, it, things are not the way that you want them to be. But when you're in the middle of the storm of all of life and the presence of Jesus walks in, then there's no other reasons to complain. Uh, It doesn't matter what your stock portfolio does today. It doesn't matter what happens with your company. It doesn't matter that you've been betrayed. It doesn't matter that you've been mistreated. It doesn't matter that uh, suddenly all of those things seem so small in comparison to the presence of Jesus. And Jesus wants to undermine your complaining and your doubting. He wants to undermine your complaining and your doubting with His presence. He wants you to remember what He has done in the past so that you'll understand what He's going to do in the future. And sure, His presence does not solve every glitch in our life. It doesn't just make for easy living. But with His presence, we can sacrifice our, on the altar our opinions and our comforts and our self-sufficiencies. We can throw that on the altar knowing that Jesus can lift us up. What is it that you find yourself complaining about? Do you complain that life is unfair, that people are mean, that the mysteries are too big, that you don't get your preferences, that people get in the way, that they're loud, that they're boisterous, that they distract you? Uh, Do you complain about the lack of personal comfort and provisions? And yet Jesus overshadows all of these complaints. So, um, I want to thank my wife for giving me a bottle of water. She is the best. So let me just hand to you, very quickly, a few things that you can jot down. And I'm going to post these later on uh, the Facebooks or the Twitter sphere or the blog or something that you can find them later as well. How do we move from a complaint-driven life to a worship-filled life? life. I mean, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, 
But it's like, how many of us today would volunteer for an eight-day worship service out in a tent in the parking lot? Like, that's, that's not normally what we do. Like, we didn't have air conditioning in our church offices for the last few days, and I thought we were all going to die. I mean, it was like the walking dead zombie apocalypse had happened. All right, I appreciate the fact that a few of you laugh for that joke. Um, so, but every day is this opportunity of worship. So how do we move from this complaint-driven life that ignores the presence of the Savior to a worship-filled life? I've adapted a few ideas uh, out of this list from my friend David Platt, who is the president of our International Mission Board. Number one, we need to have a God-centered view of God. That almost seems silly, like a God-centered view of God. But the problem is that a lot of us have a man-centered view of God, that we think God is a sanctified Santa Claus, that He's like the Amazon delivery guy who is just, He exists in order to make sure that you get your package on time, and that everything is nice in your life, and that if you need any refunds or returns that you can get them. But we need a God-centered view of God, that God is here for God. God is here to glorify God, that God does not exist in order to make you and me happy and, and, and our life neat and neatly packaged. Secondly, you need a life-changing understanding of the gospel. And, and I do mean life-changing, life-altering, life-transforming. That the gospel is not here just to be your set of rules and regulations about how to be a better you, because just being a better you still does not transform you to where you are acceptable to God. No matter what is the best version of you, you are still intrinsically broken, you are still sinful. The best version of me still deserves eternal punishment in hell. The best version of me, the most moral, ethical version of me, still deserves to be separated from God for all of eternity because I'm, I'm filled with sin, and the best version of me is still sinful. And so what I need is a life-changing understanding of the gospel that it is just for God to punish my sin and that Jesus decides to take on that punishment in my place. Number three, we need a Bible-saturated life. The Bible should not be the thing that interrupts your day. The Bible should be the thing that informs your day. You don't interrupt your day in order to go read your Bible. Instead, you allow your Bible to set the course for everything that you're going to think and do in the day. You let the revelation of God set your day. Number four, <clears throat> dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Do you live in a day-by-day, moment-by-moment need, desire, a hope that the Holy Spirit is going to fill you, empower you, help you? Or is it just a, every once in a while I'm going to ask for the Holy Spirit to like get me out of a jam when I'm facing a temptation that I've faced a million times before and I failed at a million times before, and boy, I hope He helps me this time. But we need to live on a constant dependence of the Holy Spirit. Number five, a commitment to worship with the church. That not just show up, not log in attendance, but that when I get together with the church, it's because we're going to worship together. We're going to celebrate together. We're going to celebrate the goodness of God that He has shown toward me as an individual, to us as a family, and to us as a church family, that we're going to celebrate the goodness of God. And for some people, that means standing very still in a worship service because you feel the need of awe and reverence 
and quiet before the Lord. And for others, it means that they're going to raise their hands and they're going to rock around a little bit and, and because they are passionately engaged even visually and physically in the moment that I want to reach toward the heavens because of what God has done for me. Number six, we need a multifaceted view and understanding of God's mission, that the mission of God is something that happens across the street and around the world, that the mission of God is something where we carry justice to people in order to help them out in their social moment of need for food or for housing or for clothing, but we do so so that we can carry the gospel to them as well, that we're building bridges of relationships and hospitality to people, that we're going to do that here locally when we provide backpacks and shoes to people that live four or five blocks away in the Ballard Elementary School community. And we're going to do it on the other side of the world when we send a mission team to Jordan or Uganda, or we're going to go and do it in Denver, or we're going to go do it in Miami. But that all of this is the mission of God and that none of us are spectators. But everybody that has been saved by Christ is now an ambassador for Christ, not looking at this world as your home, but as your outpost uh, for us to go into the world to share the gospel. Number seven, an eternal perspective of God's justice. God deserves justice, which means my sin deserves to be punished. All sin deserves to be punished. And, and, and that one of these days, God's going to make everything right. He's going to set everything right. Every injustice that has ever been done to you, every abuse that has ever happened in your life, every bit of racism that you've ever faced, every time that you've been shoved down or pushed away, every time you've been told to know your place or sit down, uh, that you're not smart enough, good enough, every time that there's been an injustice in your life, one of these days God's going to set all of that right because He is going to punish all sin. He has punished it in Christ, and there will be a final punishment where all sin is cast as far as the east is from the west, where, where all sin is going to be extracted from our lives if we are found in Christ. And finally, how do you really have a worship-filled life? Number eight is a death-defying passion for God's glory, that there is nothing in this world, that there is nothing on this earth that is going to stand in your way of making sure that God is glorified. That was the problem that this crowd had, is that they let everything get in the way of actually knowing that this is the Messiah. He was from the wrong place. He wasn't the right guy. He didn't have the right credentials. Uh, we, we, we don't think that he's the one. Uh, we want somebody who's a conqueror. We want somebody who's going to deliver us politically. We want somebody who's going to change social you know, norms of the country. And Jesus shows up and he says, what I actually came to do was to fix your broken heart. I came to fix your broken relationship with the Father. I, I came in order to deliver you into an eternal relationship with the God of heaven. And we need a death-defying passion that God would be glorified and that I would get none of the credit. I don't need the credit. I don't need to be noticed. I don't need anybody to pat me on the bat, pat me on the head, tell me what a great person I am. I don't need any of that. What I need is for people to see Jesus. That's all I need. And, and I'm going to have a death-defying passion about that, that no matter what the cost is, no matter what price I have to pay, no matter how many 
flaming arrows get slung at me, no matter how many stones get thrown at me, no matter how many doubters and haters that there are in the world, I'm going to have a death-defying passion that I want Jesus to be the big deal. And that's what Jesus invites you into, a life where His reputation is what colors everything about your life, where His eternal glory is what covers who you are. And so this morning, as we have an opportunity to respond to this, I want you to picture yourself that you're in an eight-day worship service camping out in a tent, and that Jesus just walked in. And you've got to decide, do you want this thing to be about you, or do you want it to be about Him? Do you want to put your faith in, in what He can do in your life, or do you want to keep trusting in what you can do for your life? And if you're ready to trust Him, I want you to respond. Some of you will need to respond by coming forward and praying with a pastor. Some of you will want to come and maybe pray at the altar. It, it may be with, with glad hearts. It may be with weeping eyes. It may be with a, a, a repentant attitude of turning away from sin and selfishness. Or it may be because you're finally responding with joy to the calling that He's put on your life. So whether that means missionary in the other part of the world, or may, whether that means just witnessing to a neighbor, or deciding that you're going to raise your children in a whole new kind of way, whatever it is that that means, I, I want to invite you to respond to Jesus being the big deal so that you can have a life that's filled with worship. Let's pray together.